anyway. Anywho. So this is a big undertaking. What is? The history of cave diving. Oh, I we mean, can't. A, we can't this possibly. Is a this we is can't a possibly do it. We can't. We can't. Did you say can't? The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando. Over your life, yeah. You know, like, people get addicted to it. Okay, everybody, it's history lesson. Get your pencils out. When are we gonna get out of school? We've been in history for a while now. This, you want detention, young man? <laughs> Again, all my friends are there now. <laughs> you mean, yeah, you mean go hang out with my buddies? <laughs> <laughs> all right, exactly. after school, we were gonna do that anyway. You know, to be honest, I've made a. I've never had detention. Uh, You're such a good boy. I was a good, high GPA, very good student. Uh, I still am. I talk a good game, like, yeah, send me to detention, smoking in the boys' room and all that. But uh, I was never like, done you ain't got to teach me nothing. I've never done it. <laughs> you can't teach me that. That's how I am now. <laughs> yeah, that's how you, you can't, are. You can't teach me nothing. That's how you are know. now, and I'm the nerd with, I'm the, nerd with the books. How <laughs> am I? Uh-oh. Well, you're, you're do you see how it's all it's all changed, guy. hasn't? Because yeah. I know you had to be. You can't teach me nothing when you were younger. Oh, I was, I was. I see, and I was the nerd with the books. Correct, correct. Nerd but with the you, books you, gets the hot. You were able. Though. You were able. Not really. <laughs> I did. <laughs> okay. You were able. You were able to tap into young the young mind of James. James. James Mott. But. Uh, for the very reason that I, I would say that the, what we're kind of talking about today is there, there was a lot of there was a lot of adventure and there was also a lot of lunacy in the adventure of a lot of the early lunacy cave in, in a cave good in, way. like the cave and tech divers yeah a lot of them were were doing it dare I say willy nilly at times you know well, just you don't know what on, you don't just know. going on balls instead that, of and that's what kind of threw me off early on I was like. This is like Russian roulette down here, man. What the what the yeah. hell are these people doing? I would uh, I would have to concur, but isn't that part of the romantic draw? You know, uh, to to most of diving anyway. <sighs> it's you've got this live by the on the edge of the sword kind of. It's, uh, it's for a lifestyle. certain person. Yeah, I I don't think um, I would say that the majority of cave divers today they're not the ballsy guy no. digging through no. looking for the next tunnel, no. No. right? They're Swimming the gold line, enjoying mm-hmm. the cave, well, you know, having fun. It's become like another specialty. I mean, albeit a more advanced and and 
requires more training and more practice and more equipment uh, and maybe a little higher IQ. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because t- exploring well. the unknown, like yeah. like going off on a, especially nowadays when so much is already mapped underground, to find a new passage is it's harder. And to, it's more difficult. To bust through it and to, yeah. to just see if you're going to get all the way through and mm-hmm. try to wiggle your way back out if it doesn't. That's a whole different yeah. ball game of cave diving. And I think a lot of people that aren't really educated about cave diving, they assume that that's all cave diving. Right, right. And when the reality is it's touristy to a certain extent now, right? To a certain extent. Not not to that that degree of mediocrity. There's uh it is still the elite of diving if you ask my whatever opinion in my experience different opinion. Right, but it's a huge difference between what it is today what it was. and yeah. what, mm-hmm. you know, Sheck and the guys were doing in northern Florida yes. in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Truth. Hashtag true facts. True. Whole different world. Mm-hmm. And what some of these, I mean, and and that was millennia ahead mm-hmm. of what some of these dudes in, in the England very, very and France were doing <laughs> yes. back in the, the, the 30s and stuff. Like, yeah. Crazy. Like, Crazy stuff. With a candle. Like, yeah. I don't mean like a flashlight with one candle power. Yeah. I mean a goddamn candle. What, in a little... Oh, they would take it when they found air pockets or what? Yeah, they'd yeah. Wrap, it, like, wrap it up in a bathing yeah. suit. Yeah, some crazy stuff. Well, I've, I've got a good one. I've got, I've got a really, really good old I'm, like one of the original cave diving stories the beauty of this james our, our listeners may not know this is so you do like the prep for finding a, a story to go through i don't do anything i just show up i got my coffee <laughs> do you want these I do a little technical that? stuff in the background that? but i just get to listen to james just like you guys and make uh, snide remarks <laughs> <laughs> and Snide they shall be. Snide they shall be. Snide they are. <laughs> Most of the time. Occasion, the occasional uh, witty banter type remark will come out. So last week, as we were moving through the history of diving, we made it into the old jockey days, into the 40s, right? Where they got the uh, aqualung up and going. Mm-hmm. Yes. And right. it was around that same time that over in France... That cave exploration began. Cousteau and the boys went over to that Vaucluse that we talked about mm-hmm. in that, that Hollow Knight story. And they went on to explore other places over throughout France with the Aqualung being the major tool at the time versus what was going on over in the UK. I think they were still using more of the, the rebreather stuff. The, the right. O2 rebreather mm-hmm. stuff was was the, the main tool. The shallower there. Yeah. So that allowed and then that, and then yeah. this is the point, right? So here we are. This is the point where right now it's gonna explode and go, and the the value of what that aqualung did to underwater exploration mm-hmm. really takes hold right at this point. And it's funny that it this just coincides with national our cave national cave diving week or month. month. Our month. national it's cave February, diving month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as we move into end of January into into February, we are in national cave diving month. So I got a book called. The Darkness Beckons. I haven't heard of that one. I see we have this it's other relatively, one open. It's relatively new. And I was just reading that the other night. The, uh, oh, the Cave Divers, Robert Burgess. Burgess yeah, it's sitting on my bed nightstand. Um, so The Darkness Beckons is by Martin Farr. It says that the, the first edition was published in 1980. Okay. And this is a revised and expanded edition 
first published in 2017. What's your quick review of it, just for our listeners? Would you give it a, a two thumbs up, one oh, thumbs so up, far, five stars? I would give it thumbs down myself. Because oh, thumbs I down. Would, I'm sorry. Yes, uh, I forgot our, our rating scales. Because I happen to listen to the Great Dive podcast, <laughs> so I know that exactly. thumbs down is good. Thumbs down. So yeah, we're, I would say dive this book. It's beautiful. It's a two thumbs down. Then? Yeah, okay. I mean, it's I gorgeous. To, uh, I mean, a, a ton of beautiful, beautiful, beautiful photography. Fantastic history. Uh, really goes a, a ton of great stuff. History, How's cave his, diving, uh, and journalistic style. How's his writing? You're gonna find out momentarily, my man. Okay. I await eagerly. But the the main reason I grabbed this one because he's got some really cool stuff about the history of cave diving mm-hmm. in here and his authoric his eloquence eloquence we oui. is uh, can be captured by how he talks about a cave is a mysterious place with a compelling fascination the darkness beckoning upon the surface the lie of the land is plain to see underground you are confronted by blackness. And it is impossible to see a hand within a few centimeters of your face. There is no more disquieting sensation. There are a few who have penetrated this realm and not experienced the real darkness, whether intentionally or unintentionally. To most, this eternal darkness holds little attraction. But to a select few, the cavers, potholers, or speleologists, it is their lifeblood. Truth. Yeah, people that get into cave diving, it can it can take over your life. You yeah, know? They, like, people get addicted to it, and that's what, that's what a lot of uh, this, especially the early stuff. Like when you were really going into the spooky, unknown land of myth and mystery and creatures and monsters. Were I mean, that's where they all lived. That's where they hid was in in the darkness, in, in the black. Caves, right? Yeah, nobody had been there. It's all unmapped. Which I think is kind of what we were getting to earlier right the, the difference of when you go dive you know you, you go down to florida and you go into devils it's a pretty intense pretty awesome cave dive mm-hmm. but at the same time there's a guideline leading you yeah it's already right been explored it. and for the most part you're not going into any area that no one has seen before right i, I mean, mean you can go not in jenny not in devils yeah you can go hundreds of feet back thousands thousands of feet back mm-hmm. come home and it doesn't have a a uh, an inkling, a tiny morsel of the real exploration that took just to get to the bottom of Devil's Ear. Right. Right, years right. ago. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, yeah, that's something that I think when you go through cave training and they talk a little bit about it, especially if you've got a good instructor and they talk about the history, they try to give uh, give a picture or paint a picture that gives some kind of reverence to the early explorers so you have an idea of the appreciation you should have for being able to jump in and go do this stuff because a lot of people died, you know. A lot of a lot of high prices were paid so that we could go. So we could go follow that golden yes, line. Yes, go splash around in uh, some crystal clear, beautiful water. And again, it's hard to explain to non-cave divers what the attraction is because yeah, you're you're swimming through rock, basically white rock for the most part. You see rock and some more rock. Hey, what is that up ahead? Oh, look! <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> that rock looks different than the rock back there. <laughs> It's a lot of rock. It's a lot of white rock, but there's a draw to it. I mean, there's a. It's I don't a, know what it is. It's a. It's a. Challenge. It's a magical yeah. draw. It's magical. And it's, 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 like, not it's for almost everybody. as if they're, it's unicorn-ish. And I thought I would never bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we had go, we had closed that chapter. See, there's times <laughs> where I think you want it to go away, but then you say shit like that. So. Uh, I know I'm bad. But there's like a what is the word? There's like a sublime 
draw nature yeah to, well, to be in in, in, that, in that, that darkness yeah. yeah for sure for sure well i think it's like other divers divers period will know what it's like the peacefulness of just diving a reef the crystal clear water you know you're always trying to get that beautiful clear water and the fish and the feeling you have there that like you said sublime the the, the peace though it's amplified if that's the right word to use but in a cave, right? You're so far isolated from anything. Yes, you know, absolutely. Reef is absolutely. one thing. In a cave, you're really well, isolated. I mean, I mean, even a reef at night, right, for a lot of right. divers is no-go zone. Like, hey, right. no, no, I've had, no, no, yes. no, I'm not going yeah. there, you know? And then I remember, you know, uh, the first time somebody told me to, to do a dive, uh, we were doing a wreck dive up in the Georgian Bay, southern Georgian mm-hmm. Bay, off of uh, Penetanguishene up there. Yeah. And uh, my buddy was like, well, when we get down, just shut your light off, right? Because there was a bunch of other divers on the boat. It was the first time I'd done that. I'm a little teenage kid, you know, and uh-huh. like all the divers coming in, like in the black with the lights going. Yeah, it, back in that day, like, too, there was, it was dark below it was, 60 oh, feet. It was, it was a dark, night dive, yeah. you know, in so the middle of the day. It was, the reminder was like the, the scene of the spaceship in Close Encounters of the Third Kind of a yeah, the light yeah, beams yeah, going yeah. all over, you know? But then, like, nowadays, like, I've got no problem, like, being on a dive and lights off oh, yeah you're all caved up and and yeah lights off and just yeah you're using the ambient light that's there mm-hmm. although it may be faint it's mm-hmm. still there if you give your eyes a minute to adjust not in a whereas cave. i remember <laughs> talking to my light to my wife on a, on a dive like shut your light off and just there's there's plenty down there she was like are you fucking kidding <laughs> just like shutting my light off like, no way that's like you'll be fine you'll be fine uh, there was no talking mm-hmm. into that you know take that one step further to, mm-hmm. to be in like in a cave as, as you know when the lights go out there there's yeah, there's no blackness blacker than yeah it's than a that. vacuum of light is how i always i say to my family and friends when they're they're being forced to watch my cave diving movies <laughs> uh but yeah it's a vacuum of light there it's just total blackness but there is a peacefulness and a solitude and and all those things you search for in di- at least for me i those are the things i find attractive to diving and again though you have to go to the other side and go cave diving definitely is not for everyone it's not for all divers if you don't like being in confined places you don't want to be in there and let me uh you know uh ease this up a little bit by saying they're not even all that confined for the most oh no no sometimes you have big rooms and big hallways yeah yeah, I mean, I mean, there's some. Sometimes you're in Big rooms foyers. like size of giant gymnasium size like rooms. Like a giant. You know? So it's it's not that, but it's you can't focus on all the bad things that could happen. Oh yeah, right. You've... Which is what people get wrapped up in. Like, oh my god, I could get lost. Oh my god, I could run. Well, you're oh lacking god, the confidence, go... oh, right? Exactly. This goes. Right, we we right. can draw bring this right back around to our our philosophy and uh, what we preach about training. You know, it's all about building the confidence, and you only get the confidence from proper training. Training, proper practice, you know, uh, and proper equipment. It's the mindset. Everything, all of that stuff, all gets rolled into one big package that you need to go enjoy yourself on a cave dive and not fool yourself. That's the thing is, a lot of people go through training and they're fooling themselves because they don't they don't really well, get pushed they, at all in their training. They don't mm-hmm. get pushed within themselves as much as they exactly. get pushed to buy a, a piece of equipment to do mm-hmm. do the task for exactly. them. Exactly. It always comes back to this, doesn't it? As my old buddy yeah. Brando used to say, hashtag true facts. <laughs> hashtag true facts. I actually still say that. <laughs> old Martin says that the risky aspect of the sport began in France with Norbert Castoret's successful passage of two sumps in Grotte de Montespan in 19... 19- 1922, and in Britain with Jack Shepard's passage of Sump 1 at Swildon's Hole 
1936. Since then, many short flooded sections have been conquered all around the world, and inevitably, once passed, there are other people keen to repeat the challenge. True. So once somebody comes back saying that there's not a big, giant, scary monster there. Yeah. We go, oh, I'm going in. The- I'm going to be an explorer, too. Right. So you think of the groundbreaking. Yes. Literally groundbreaking to, to get through into some of these passages that open up into these rooms of crevices that just get smaller and smaller and smaller and then open up into boom. Yeah. This giant magical, like, like almost yeah. like going Alice in Wonderland through a mm-hmm. completely new world. Right. And to be the first person, that's quite a feeling, you know. Not and that you, I know what it is. I've look, never gone and, into and a new you'll cave, look but. at like the, the way they were doing it, literally with a goddamn exactly. candle, exactly. The lights they had and things like that, yeah, insane, insane. So I don't I mean, know. Think it of it the makes te- you wonder like, what is the drive? The, like think of like where was the technology back in 1922? Maybe, it was it was I mean, not where at, it is today. <laughs> I mean, you look at like the the, the light that you're using, mm-hmm. like when we go do a dive next week. Mm-hmm. Compared to the yes. light that you use when you first took your cave class. Tiny, super bright that we have. I mean, I'm talking about what we have right now. I can just go in my own 20 years of experience cave diving, going from those huge canisters with a lead-acid battery, and you, you've got a halogen light. You'd, you'd put a 30-watt or 35-watt around there because you wanted the extra burn time. And you'd get maybe two hours burn time, hour and a half burn time. Now, those of you who don't realize, cave diving usually are longer dives. They're usually a couple hours long, uh, at least how I like to cave dive. I mean, I, I know other people, you can go do a little 40-minute dive or whatever, and it's great. That's wonderful. I like to, if you want to do those long cave dives, you do the 30-water, giganto. So, so you the burn time. Giganto. I still have my large canister, and everybody made the them homemade. Of, it was the size yeah. of a tank. They're homemade. You made them from, uh, you know, an old, I shouldn't say an old, you get an acrylic canister from an acrylic manufacturer or uh, some different plastic ones. Uh, before they were actually being mass produced, before cave diving caught on to the general masses of scuba diving like it is now. But yeah, and then you, you'd have to get your, your cable to run the light to it. And somebody, you had a friend who could machine the he- the light head that'll hold the halogen. And then you get the test tube and that goes over with some O-rings goes over the bulb and that's how you go then you get if you really wanted light you put a hundred watt halogen in there and uh it was bright but nothing like like a 10 watt hid that came out you know afterwards and would last like three times as long and then now with, blew the, LED, it away. with the led lights nowadays blows it all away the battery lasts and the battery's tiny <laughs> <laughs> the battery nearly lasts indefinitely yes 12 and, hours and right and, and puts out major light yeah I mean, insane. All, you go all the way back to you know the the sixties, seventies, eighties. The the light technology back then was right. basically rigging a, a a car headlight. That's all. Basically, that's up, what it is. A, it's a lead acid battery. That it was twelve. Well, I'm trying to remember how how much that thing weighed, and I think it was like eight pounds negative. So it was a ditchable weight. We considered it as ditchable weight. And I can't remember what the damn thing weighed just hooked onto your belt, right? It's pain. And so you throw your doubles on, you throw that thing on with you, and then you trek through the woods to go get into the water. Rewind. Yes. Another 30, 40 exactly. years prior exactly. to that, yeah. right, is where we're getting into this early exploration into Mont Sapin by Norbert Castoret. Crazy. And I mean, it, I look at it's like, never been explored, like I looked, so. I mean, I did my, 
I uh, cave class in the mid 2000s and I look at the like just the backup light that I had for that right yeah. which was just a like a, it was like a xenon or halogen backup light right I did, just found it the other day when I was, I was cleaning <laughs> up here because I haven't used it in years so I got these sweet you know LED backup mm-hmm. lights that actually are nice bright powerful lights I turned that thing on the other day I was like what the hell is this piece of shit you can't see, any, can't see anything yeah. with this yeah man it's like yeah. it's like a dingy yellow and it barely even lights up you're like is this thing broken I was like I use this <laughs> but in the day you're like wow that's pretty good those are the top of the line backup lights you got there brother yeah that's uh, crazy crazy so as I'm like reading through the story of, of Castor A's like him like going through with matches and a candle nice damn it's pretty wild gutsy like I say it makes you wonder what is the impetus what is the drive is it just this I want my name to be known or I want to be the first in the in a anywhere I want to be the first of anything well I, I believe it's that innate draw that only some humans have mm-hmm. you know of I'm climbing that fucking mountain of right. Everest right I'm yeah. I want no matter what I want takes. the view mm-hmm. from the top of that you know that that somebody had at one point and it's or the same draw that they never had it and then they're they want to be the first one to have it. They look at it and go, "I have to, uh, I have to get up there to see things right. or to get down." And, and, there and to I see think, things. like when you know uh, the the early pioneers over here, you know, coming from Europe, hitting the United States shores and exploring westbound and right. hitting all those things in their way of of reaching that other coast. Mm-hmm. Most of them said, eh, I'm going to settle in Philly. Yeah. (laughs) Philly's good for me. To worry about getting killed or eaten. And then some of them were like, no, man, I'm going over those goddamn mountains. I want to see what's on the other side. Mm -hmm. And then some of them cannibalized each other in the the winter of 19... But, a la uh, Donner Party. Yeah, but, yes. uh, yeah. Well, th- we have to thank those people, though. I mean, that's what this book's about and, and all these cave diving books. This is just one area that holds a lot of explorers and that, that spirit. Now, Martin Farr says about the uh, Castoret Montsapin dives that the first recorded success took place in 1922 when the 25-year-old Frenchman Norbert Castoret made an incredibly bold free-diving assault upon the Grotte de Montespan in the Pyrenees. On his first solo trip into the cave, Castoret dared to tackle an icy-cold sump in complete darkness. Dang. He says that this must certainly rate as one of the most audacious explorations in caving history. Audacious or bodacious? Today we would call it bodacious because it's pretty badass. But back then it was just audacious. Such actions could clearly be regarded as rash today or bodacious. But Castore <laughs> seems to have calculated the risks well and advanced to each new stage with steely judgment. A clue to his amazing motivation is found in the introduction to his classic book, Ten Years Under the Earth, in which he explains how caving led to an interest in prehistory, geology, and subterranean hydrology. So, and I don't know if this is the right point to bring this up, but, you know, this early time of cave diving and going in with who knows what type of equipment in equipment configuration and you go in and you accomplish the dive and you live and you're like, okay, that's the way we do it. Or you don't even think about it. Yeah. That's my threshold now. You know, your, your error threshold. So I, I've done it this way before and go in and you keep doing the same mistakes, although you don't know their mistakes because correct. You have nothing really to compare to following your footsteps back out. Right. Because you haven't had the mistake of the footsteps got washed away yet. Right. And you don't have all of, you know, the, uh, 
the data from a whole lot of dives in it, it that you can bring in and, and analyze and come up with techniques and protocol. And so you can go in and, and do it every time safely and safer and learn from your mistakes. That's eventually came. I mean, that's where DIR was born was an analysis of accidents and going through and having an approach that was uh, unlike any other in the sense of what do I want to have when everything goes to crap at my furthest point in the dive? Correct me if I'm wrong, but mm-hmm. I, I would say that the exploration was going so well, so fast for so long that nobody had really at that point really t- stopped taking a breath and looked backwards yet. Well, I don't know about that. I think there were the, the thing that was different, there were people dying, but nobody was stopping and going, let's analyze. That, and that's what I mean. That's or I mean. The re- the, they the, thought the reason they were dying were was really not the core reason. They looked at like the very face of the, like, uh, he ran out of air, so give him more air. You know, that right, kind of thing. Right. The fact is they're on air at 300 feet. They didn't think about that. Oh, because we can't change the helium, you know. And somebody said, well, why not? Things like that happened. I mean, uh, there, I'm, I'm generalizing. It's very big yeah, general, no, no, no. I mean, generalizing. It's, it's, it's but a huge. It was the huge... approach that changed, Jamesy, is what I'm getting at. They may have looked at accidents, and they looked at them at the very face value. Let's figure out where the real problem is with him running out of air. Was it in his training? He lost his buddies. You know, they never looked at that. They said, oh, you're supposed to lose your buddies. Oh, yeah, you're supposed to be narked out of your gourd. You know, the basic directives that we go by now, they weren't there. And that's where it came out of cave diving and cave diving accidents. So those were happening. They just approached it differently. And, and from what I understand, from how yeah, I, yeah, no, I came about yeah. into it. So. Yeah. But I think it's pretty... People were arguing it bad. Yeah. Big, like, mm-hmm. like I mean, like... Fist fight arguing, yeah. Back in the 90s. Yes. But in 2020, it's pretty much changed the game in hindsight. Oh, yeah. Well, everybody... Right. The, the other thing is... You know, they ridiculed you. You know, that old thing. First, they ridicule you then or they mock you and and then they uh, call you names, whatever. And then they copy you. So the long story yeah, short they, is first they mock you. Yeah. Then they ridicule you. Yeah, and then they, they copy uh, you. <laughs> They're doing what you've been saying. Yeah, yeah. And I want you to, again, we've talked about this before. You open up a dive magazine. They're freaking horizontal and they're neutrally buoyant now. 10, 15 years ago, false. You open up a dive magazine. Everybody was vertical, on their knees. Their fins are flying everywhere. Hands are being used, even in the videos. And it took a long time. Finally, it started clicking like, yeah, there's a benefit, and it's not that difficult. Yeah, is it a little more training? Well, yeah. yeah. Well, it should be. Yeah, Same and thing that, with and that, and that training, you know, which came out of a small faction, a, a small faction of cave diving, mm-hmm ended up changing a lot of the cave diving instruction overall all the way to the point we're changing instruction throughout Period. the entire mm-hmm. industry with a I mean everybody now has a new look of buoyancy balance and mm-hmm. trim whether they're really pulling it off at the end of a course or not it's mentioned where right. in in these days didn't even who cares no it wasn't, it wasn't even, that wasn't even a, a care in the world they weren't if even you aware got there, you got there yeah big deal they weren't even aware and that you know in the early days of me teaching my fundamental stuff we were teaching trimix instructors 
been diving for 20 and 30 years, and they could not hold their depth. They could not be horizontal, and they couldn't share gas or remove and replace the mask without 10 feet of depth change flopping into the bottom, holding on to something. Basics to to us now, that's a basic requirement, if you ask me. You well, absolutely is. Stuff. But back then, I mean, tech diving was just you had to have the balls to and go to two, three hundred feet and the and gear. No lack of IQ. And you didn't need the control because you were you were walking up the anchor line hand over hand over hand yes. anyways. Mm-hmm. And when you got to your stop, you're just going to wrap in a John line. Right. And you're going to hang negatively buoyant uh-huh. off of that kind of bouncing around. So it, Clip it, it on. <laughs> it was never uh, hands free. Yeah. I mean, I'm and I, I'm not trying to be no, little. No, if you saw somebody. Off, right, yeah. But if you yeah. saw somebody just raping and molesting a. Uh, a, a mooring line like that in 2019, you'd go, what the hell? What the hell is yeah, going on? Yeah. Because being able to control your buoyancy and not having to hold onto the line and do your ascent is kind basic. of standard, mm-hmm. basic standard place nowadays. Mm-hmm. And this is where it all, what we were talking right, about with those born. days is this is where this was all being born. Mm-hmm. I agree with you there. Mm-hmm. But let's get back to these early cave days. So we moved on to um, this basic free diving that uh, Castore was doing. And we moved into like in the um, the early days of uh, Fontaine de Vaucluse. Martin mentions you know that early Ottenelli dive in uh, the the late eighteen hundreds where he went down and his remember, his, remember we were talking mm-hmm. about with that jockey yeah. dive where his iron or boat flipped over right. and then years later Nigiri went down and, and <laughs> said proved that, just, that he didn't really go down to the depth that he said he right, went right, down right. to. Yeah, yeah. all that good fun stuff. Yeah, and then they do talk in here. He talks in here about eighteen eighties uh, exploring that Severn tunnel. Right, right. With the old uh, Severn mm-hmm. Railway, right, which in these days everybody was using that old Seab hard hat yeah. mm-hmm. system that we were talking mm-hmm. about in uh, our earlier episodes. And he goes on to talking about the first self-contained aqualung attempt was made in um, 1946 when Cousteau's team went and did the Vaucluse story that we told in the Great Hall of Night last year. So really the birth of, of cave diving exploration kind of started. I mean, you had a few predecessors, as we just talked about. But yeah, but now really being on, on real get back there. scuba, mm-hmm. you know, where it's just a, a man and, and a, a bottle, yes. <laughs> you know, uh, and we saw all the nightmare problems that uh, they had in that mm-hmm. early day. And then, you know, Martin goes on to talk about all kinds of, you know, some of the cool early accidents that occurred and, and where that got us and how um, things were happening over in Italy and Spain as well. And mm-hmm. some of the differences that were going on between the, the French group, which was using the Aqualung at this time, and then the English were still using the, the O2 rebreather mm-hmm. and hard hat kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And the, the it goes on to really talk about the growth of that early British cave diving group, the official right. cave diving group, which, hell, that's a, a whole episode in and of itself, yeah. as, as big as, uh-huh. as that group is. Yeah, I don't think I don't think folks realize how big uh, cave diving was over there in Britain. I, when I took my first, when I took my open water class back in mid '80s, my instructor was very big into cave diving, knew knew Sheikh Axley, and spoke a lot about cave diving. And I learned overseas in the Middle East area, and he was cave diving in England quite a bit. He would jaunt over there. Yeah, that's and, and that's like a really interesting perspective that right. so many people, the overwhelming majority of people that are scuba divers, don't even understand or can even conceptualize. Well, it's not even that, brought to their that, attention. Well, that somebody would 
would learn to dive because they wanted to cave dive. Mm-hmm. Right? For, for most people, that's maybe possibly a thought 10 classes down the road. Oh, at least, what what yeah. do I do yeah. next? Yeah. Ah, maybe I'll try cave diving. It comes um, after <laughs> underwater navigator specialty, underwater basket weaving specialty, yeah. yes. et cetera, et cetera. Eventually you do cave diving. But, I mean, there's a lot of people that, that live and grew up in north central Florida that the whole the reason mm-hmm. that they want to learn to dive is so that they can go do this right. hole that's out in the backyard exactly. kind of a thing, you know? Jumping in them there potholes, boy. <laughs> Yes. Right, right. Yeah. So we uh we used a bit of Robert Burgess's book The Cave Divers back when we did Cousteau's mm-hmm. Great Hall of Night. And this guy's a great writer. Yeah, and, that's a great book. Really I, really that book has the, you know, the magic of of telling the story mm-hmm. around an already pretty awesome interesting story. But he goes into the uh 20,000 years in a cave talking about Castoret's first dive. Mm-hmm. Now he starts off by saying that in southwestern Europe between France and Spain, for a distance of about 240 miles, the Earth's crust pushes up to a height of over 11,000 feet to form the rugged Pyrenees Mountains. I love the Pyrenees. Scattered throughout their length like beads on a string are many caves and caverns in such places as Alcadie, La Bastide, Gaga, Trois-Frères, La Vache, and Niaux. Where prehistoric man inhabited these caves, he left behind unique evidence of his presence, including some of the earliest art in existence. Awesome. Yeah, so these are like talking about those old cave drawings right. and, and sculpture and in those early stories, like uh, the, the European version of what you would think of as hieroglyphics in many ways, of telling tales of hunting and adventure and, mm-hmm. and almost like uh, animal spirit worship and idol worship of uh, of these early prehistoric men so basically you can get into these caves and see the remnants of the cave men yeah cave, literally cave literally men cave, men, yeah. cave women or cave chicks cave people so in 1932 a dedicated french speleologist norbert castoret made one of the most daring plunges into prehistory ever known for a find unique in the annals of exploration so you'd mentioned earlier like what would what would be the draw mm-hmm. right for you someone want to be number one yeah we're number one so castoret was more than a dedicated cave explorer he says that he was obsessed with the sport One would almost think that he had been born in a cave, but actually, he was all five years old before he entered into his first one. Little uh, little cave near Toulouse, where his uh, parents showed him uh, by wonders of a little flashlight, and he was uh, from his pre-adolescent days just kind of enraptured with uh, the draw of that darkness. Makes you wonder where it comes from. It's not just darkness, because you could go into a room and be in a darkness. It's a draw of a cave. Like, where does it come from? Makes you wonder if there's DNA memory. Tangent. Tangent. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Passed on from generation to generation. It's where instinct comes from. We were in caves at one time. This guy wants to get back into a cave. So he he heard about this quarry. Gilboa? (laughs) No, it wasn't Gilboa. White Star? Um, I thought we were the quarry capital of the world, actually. No, this this quarry where there was a little cavern. This has been when he's like a teenage kid. Mm Mm-hmm. So he mentions that just before twilight, with a candle in hand, he crawled into his first real cavern. He wiggled through a labyrinth, dropping down into a gallery where he barely skirted a deep pit. Pausing at another pit, he listened to the sounds of an underground stream 
There was much more beyond, but he had gone as far as he cared to go with nothing more than a candle. The next night, Castoret returned with his younger brother, and the two went on what certainly must rank as one of the most exciting candlelit journeys in the history of spelunking. Explorer's fever had hold of us, and nothing short of collapse would stop us, he said, years later in his own book. <laughs> Carrying a Boy Scout knapsack. This is like the early cave diving yeah. uh, uh, rig here. Yeah. Get this. Carrying his Boy Scout knapsack containing a rope, a hammer, matches, and a package of candles, they reached and crossed the second pit and wandered ecstatically through a grotto full of strange stalactites. Skirting more pits, they roped down a 40-foot precipice, squeezed through stone loopholes, splashed through a sunken brook, fought their way up steep mud banks the consistency of butter, broke their way through a forest of stalactites to a hidden corridor that they followed to a dead end where they found a small animal skeleton. Awesome. <laughs> at like 10 <laughs> years old. We got. <laughs> at like 10 years old, right? It's a rat head. That's <laughs> cool. Now, you, you mentioned like what, what is the draw? And mm. I'm going to say maybe the ignorance of children at this point. You know what I, I mean? Know. Like, like, like I, I would do much more daring things in my True, because you're immortal. Simple. You're Correct. immortal. Yes. You don't know what you don't know. And you, don't, you don't know the dangers of getting stuck in a cave. Like we talk about the blackness of being in a cave is like no other darkness you know. You don't find your way out in darkness. You, you, you feel around at walls. So if those candles didn't work or those matches got wet and didn't fire and his candle got blown out, he's up a creek. Absolutely. They don't and, uh, but, and he, you know, he toughened up and hardened up as a, as a kid and growing into a young man. And they, they go on to say how he... All got, kids were tough back then. Yeah, but he got... He said, like well, hang on a second. Today. But he, uh, what I'm saying is... They weren't snowflakes. They were, they were rocks. All of them They were are. sleet and hail. <laughs> Compared to today's case. Today's snowflakes. Yeah, no doubt about it. But, um, you know, soon soon thereafter, he got shipped off to World War One, And he's, he said that a lot of his, the hardiness that he built within himself of, of staying mm -hmm. focused and getting his ass back got out of the, the cave, war. got him through that war. Well, heck yeah. And later, post-war, during a vacation in the mountains, he was told of this little village of Montespan in the foothills of the Pyrenees. Where there was an impenetrable cave. That and, right there is and, and, and like, he's like impenetrable. Oh, it's game on. <laughs> Are you talking to me? <laughs> yeah. I don't know right. if you know who this is. So he uh, he packed yeah. up. He's like, impenetrable my ass. I'm going to go. I'm going to go check this <laughs> that out. That doesn't sound very good. <laughs> <laughs> my ass is impenetrable. <laughs> yeah. Let's keep it that That's, way. Let's that, just keep that, it that, that way. That, did, that didn't come out right. No. Penetrable my ass. <laughs> Okay, so the villagers of this town had told Castoret that in exceptionally dry summers, one could walk up a natural corridor carved by a stream and easily enter a sizable grotto. But since this was not those dry periods, Castoret stripped off his clothes, squeezed through a small opening, and waded along the shallow pebble and sand bottom of the stream into a cave about 12 feet wide and 8 feet high. Inside was a fairly uninteresting horizontal gallery, 130 feet long. As Castray waded toward its farthest end, the ceiling sloped down and forced him to walk in a stooped position. The stream deepened until he stood at the edge of a dark pool where the roof of the cave disappeared into the water. It was a dead end. Or was, was it? it? <laughs> so, so there he is. It's, uh, he gets all the way back. 
it disappears into the water and what do you do as a as a young cave exploring man who just showed up at the impenetrable hole <laughs> well today's kids might do something different but back then you go back and you, you get yourself some goggles and uh did they have they did have fins because if you remember the the stories of uh old jacques buddies what's his name uh what was his name? Dumas. And Dumas. Talier, yeah. yeah. So Dumas was, Talier was in the uh, Navy with, with old Jockey, but Dumas was the one who was the civilian that was uh, like watching the breath hold divers, the spear fishermen. And he got his first set of goggles given to him, you know, and they were like handmade. And then the fins, those came about. So yeah, because this uh, is the twenties. Yes, right. So, so I mean, they're 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 already they're out, out there they're doing this stuff. So the they do have today. that stuff, yeah. you know. So maybe that's is that what he did? No, fudge! I thought I was like going somewhere no, with this. He didn't even stop. Oh, he just went in, felt went dripping, underwater, dripping hot wax onto a rock projection. He placed his lighted candle there. Then he slowly waded into the ever-deepening pool, determined to try to follow the stream underground, to swim into its flooded tunnel, its siphon. When the water was up to his neck, he paused to consider the ramifications of this risky undertaking. The stream could go on endlessly with no air pockets. He might lose his way and never come out. He might get caught in quicksand or hit his head on a rock projection or maybe even fall down some sunken shaft. None of these possibilities frightened him enough, however, to dampen his spirit for learning what, if anything, was beyond the rocky barrier in front of him. Wow. Ballsy, man. Yeah. That's some ballsy shit right there. It's crazy is what that is. I mean, uh, I'd be thinking of ways to go about it that kind of gave me a chance of coming back should there not be an air pocket back there. And Now, when they're saying See, the now, siphon... Now, that's yeah. because of you knowing what you know, right? I don't know. I, that, think, I think like, back I would, when I was young, would... I, I still like to have an, uh, an exit strategy. Like, I never did anything going, well, I'm probably not coming back from this. Later, <laughs> bitches. I didn't do many I, things like that. I did a couple, not on purpose. I did a couple times. Oh, you were like, yeah, I'm going to die today. It's cool. Well, it wasn't like I knew I was going to die today, but I was—I remember trying to you know, take my bicycle down a cliff. Well, I've done that you know, where, stuff, where, but I always thought, I was like, I'm not going to be I made it this. about four of the 60 feet before I, I was off ro- roofs rolling and stuff. end yeah, over end over end down to the bottom. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I did stupid Hindsight, shit. That was really stupid. That right. was, but you still thought I'm immortal. I won't get injured from a mere trauma. But to go into a, you know, I wouldn't go underwater because I did know, like, well, if you, I'm right. not, I don't have gas with me. There, if it's just water, 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 and I can't get back here, I'm in a world of hurt. So I'm this guy, drown. so he, so he knew he could hold his breath for a while. So he was like, I, I can hold just my breath a for couple about minutes. two minutes. Yeah, right. Two, <laughs> he's got like a two minute, while. He's got a two minute breath hold, which is pretty good. Oh yeah, yeah. that's a pretty good breath hold. If, it's if better than these snowflakes. <laughs> no. <laughs> How old is he here again? He's not a kid he's, at this uh, point, is he? He's in his uh, mid twenties. Twenties, right? Yeah, that's what I thought. He's a young man. So yeah, so he <gasps> takes a breath and ducks under and kind of mm-hmm. starts pulling himself along the the wall with his mm-hmm. fingertips, trying to see what happens. And Burgess goes on by saying that suddenly, first his hand, then his head emerged, and he could breathe. It was totally dark. He had swum through an underwater tunnel and surfaced in an air pocket. Knowing it would be even more foolhardily to go further without light, he turned back, again diving down under the ceiling and surfacing in the glow of his candle sitting by the edge of the pool. 
Hmm. I mean, so just think about that amount of light of like coming. So you're in complete darkness yeah. and you do this dive and you come back out to a, a cavern yeah. with a candle. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's like one little candle. <laughs> you know, think about when the power goes out and you got a candle in the, in the, in the living room. You're still going to crack your knee on the damn yeah. coffee table, yeah. right? Well, in the beginning, Boom. yeah. His eyes were probably pretty well adjusted to the darkness. But yeah, anyway, still gutsy, ballsy stuff. Crazy. It, it, you have like a if you look at a scale here you have you know snowflake on one end and then you you start to go farther to the left and you're like you know uh, uh, a little I want to say brave and then gutsy ballsy insane and stupid you know <laughs> he's like at the insane <laughs> right uh, I wouldn't say he, he's stupid I think that he has some I mean they're stupid there are people that just go do stupid they have no ramif- they don't think there's any ramifications that's stupid. well this, so there's this a, there's knows. the edge right so yeah th- there's that line between exploring and pushing a comfort zone and then realizing that if we're going to push it any further it is unknown and we've got to go outside of that comfort zone. True. And this is where he's he's kicking it. And most people don't have the balls to kick it. No. Right? They're really comfortable going in the spooky part of the relatively known. Mm-hmm. But kicking to that next level takes a whole new level of person. Of crazy. And there's, and, and as crazy as it is, mm-hmm. got to have respect for it. Oh, yeah. Because we'd, we'd, we'd never know the majority of what we know out in the world today if it weren't for these people. Exactly. That's how it all started. I mean... You had to have somebody who's like, well, yeah, I've got to do something different than what I'm doing, and it, it might kill me. So the next day, Castray returned with his simple but effective casing equipment. The next day, Castray returned with his simple but effective caving equipment, a handful of candles, matches, and a rubber bathing cap to keep them dry. Nice. That's what I would have picked. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've got almost I've got matches. Check. Candles, check. I'm missing something. I know I'm missing something. Honey, <laughs> I'm in the shower. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> that rubber bathing cap. Give me that rubber cap. Give me shower cap, honey. I'm going cave. I'm going cave diving. So, um, yeah, so he, go, he goes back, so navigates all the way back through, gets back to that same little passage, mm-hmm. gets to where the water is, rolls up the candles and matches in that mm-hmm. bathing cap, Ducks room. He didn't just go get a Ziploc baggie from the from the drawer in the kitchen. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's check the candles the, and what, what was the technology of 1922 <laughs> out there? Um, hmm. I don't even Ziplocs didn't even come into. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, we, we didn't have oh, Ziploc. We just had to like the foldy ones. But the the kids who were baggie. super rich had Ziploc baggies. <laughs> the super oh, wealthy kids had man. Ziploc baggies. Yeah, we got by with the fold up. So he comes up, shakes the water off of his bathing cap, pulls out the candle, pulls out the match, lights it up. Burgess says he was in a long, shallow opening with a ceiling just inches above his head. Yet there was enough trapped air to breathe as he cautiously moved along the passageway for another hundred yards. Oh, I was going to say, but his, his candle's using it up pretty good, too. That shallow pocket widened up into a big chamber like 30, 40 feet high. That he crawled out of the water to uh, try to warm himself back up. His heart was just pounding with excitement. I'm curious how they got this story. Is is this from his own words? Well, he would. Yeah, remember he went on to write a book. Oh, he wrote the book. Okay, sorry. 
In his limited circle of light, he saw great frozen waterfalls of white calcite cascading down the walls of the chamber. The creek itself was almost buried in boulders fallen from above. As many caverns as Castray had explored in the past ten years, he could never remember feeling quite so alone and isolated with such a sense of foreboding and apprehension. Yet he was drawn on the gnawing curiosity to find out what lay beyond, knowing full well that some simple little accident like getting his matches wet could be fatal. Hashtag true facts, for sure. Right, for so, sure. So this is where, you know, that the, the first real thoughts of thinking through the exit, right, are, yeah. are, are now starting. I mean, <laughs> tell me this is getting further and further. This is the first. Tell me his wet matches weren't the first rule of thirds. <laughs> to, yeah. to come I should take six matches, two matches in, two matches out, and two for safety. Yeah. So here, Castray forced himself not to think about what could happen and concentrated on coping with the unknown dangers that might lay ahead of him. So building, right, that proper mindset. Right. Right, like kind of like we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, so many people focus on the, I'm going to run out of gas. Right. Oh, I'm going to get lost. Happening. Oh, I'm going to get separated. Oh, no, I don't even want to uh, get there. Rather mm-hmm. than taking the time to realize that, well, if you go back and you build up that solid base mm-hmm. of comfort in your equipment, comfort in your yeah. training, knowing that you have the knowledge, knowing that you have the Confidence, tools. Confidence, yeah. Yeah. Well, we say this all the time, that competence breeds confidence. The more competent you are at anything, the more confident you are at it. And that confidence is where you get your comfort from. So those three and play the, together. And it's the lack of confidence that creates the fears. Right. You're it's discomfort. You don't, you're anxious. You're, you know, and you're not going to enjoy it. I mean, we've said this from day I mean, one. And, and, Again, yeah, it always and, goes and back that's, to and that's diving, the way we train. And that's diving yeah. in general. Right? It's yes. why people are afraid of the night dive because they're afraid they're going to just keep mm-hmm. sinking and sinking and sinking and sinking and never never return because they're not confident with their yeah. buoyancy skills. They're not confident with their balance and control in the water. Mm-hmm. It's why people are afraid of clearing their mask and afraid of their mask coming off of their face and, and horrified yeah. of that because they don't know where they're going to go when the right. mask goes off. Am I going to shoot to the surface and embolize? Am I going to plummet to the bottom of the abyss and drown and die? It's because they don't have that comfort with their buoyancy to begin with. They don't have the competence with their buoyancy. They which don't. makes them unconfident, non-confident right, with exactly. themselves mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, as a diver. Yeah, yeah now whereas you go get the training, you become very competent with your buoyancy. You know you can lose your mask and you're not going to fly to the surface. You know that you can share gas if somebody needs to share gas. You can help a diver out if need be. You know how to do that. You have propulsion techniques. You have buoyancy under control. All of that stuff plays into your, your competence, which makes you more comfortable. So that's our little training uh, spiel for the day. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. Plus, you, I mean, you can get inside your head too much, right? Even if you are, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess you are competent and confident, you can get inside your head. I think you're more likely to get inside your own head and start worrying if you, you don't know what the hell you're doing. But Well, that's, where, that's where a good instructor good. is going to help keep you on track of, of reality. Reality's good. So Castoray came across another deep pool where he uh, put out his candle, stuffed it into his Baby shower cap, cap. <laughs> <laughs> bathing cap. And uh, shivering his ass off, you know, freezing mm-hmm. cold because he's basically naked, you know, walking through a, a, a wet cave. This time, he dived under again, and the long pointed stalactites thrust down from the roof of the underwater siphon like sharp teeth, obstructing his way. 
He pushed and pulled his way through them, scraping his body painfully on their rough edges. There seemed to be no end to this torment. Terror tightened his throat as the black water swirled around him, and he wondered if this time he may have pushed his luck too far. But just at the point where he knew he either had to go back or find the surface somewhere, again, came up in a pocket of trapped air. (laughs) It's just like... These little pockets of trapped air, these little rooms he's come into are it's like, come a little bit further. A little bit further. A little come bit on further. in. He mentions that it was like Beckoning. a small, low-ceiling gallery where water dripped so incessantly from the overhead stalactites that his candle was repeatedly extinguished. He was so chilled from the stream's icy waters, he had to stop and exercise his arms and legs vigorously to start circulation again. Let, let me ask you a question. Uh-oh. I want, I want you to just... If we go to the pool, the mm-hmm. swimming pool, mm-hmm. and you're soaking wet, mm-hmm. and you stand up in chest-deep water, mm-hmm. and reach a dry candle and match from the side <laughs> of the pool, you and then try you, to keep it you lit. You think you could light it? <laughs> yeah, try to light it and keep it lit, yeah. Yeah, exactly. With wet uh, fingers, yeah. I, I don't think I could pull it off. He's, he's doing it. That's his wild. The other side of this is, so when he does die back there... Nobody knows where the hell he's at, do they? I mean, does anybody? We, nobody we don't know. knows. No, yeah, so nobody his knows. dead body's just—he just disappeared from the face of the oh, earth. Oh, he's basically. gone. Yeah, gone for the. Yeah, I mean, the, the loudest, loudest screams oh, for as long as as sound could utter from your from your body. <laughs> no one would <laughs> ever gonna, ever yeah. hear it. Yeah, yeah. Nobody's gonna get you. So anyway, so he he keeps busting his way through this and uh, finally uh, sees. Uh, some some tadpoles in the water, and realizes, hey, I gotta be close to uh, to the surface again. I gotta be close back to because little uh, tadpoles, tadpoles aren't are gonna aren't here, gonna yeah. go back. And he mm-hmm. finds a little crevice mm-hmm. that uh, he can't fit through, but light could come through, and he uh, gets to another spot. So he starts coming back to this place and, yeah. and spo- exploring these rooms over and over again for uh, for the rest of that summer. Does he lay line? He. I think he laid line. He, no, he was doing it all by memory. He didn't go to the dive shop and grab a spool or a reel and uh, start laying some line. <laughs> did he? Did he, uh, he grabbed a couple of cave arrows <laughs> from the local dive shop. So uh, he he mentions that for the rest of the summer, Castro made repeated expeditions into the cavern, wandering through a maze of new halls and low galleries on a second level, ever watchful for some signs of prehistoric habitation, like the big leftover. Saber-toothed tiger that may still be alive down the there ribs. to eat him. The ribs and the fork. and Yeah. So finally, the seasonal rain set in, and the cavern was no longer uh, able to be explored. Before it was completely flooded, however, he tried to get beyond the first rock barrier, but found that he had to swim too great a distance underwater to find any trapped air pockets. So he gave up for the summer. The next year, he came uh, back with a buddy of his, and, and they went back in and explored the hell mm-hmm. out of this. And they started finding all these old, that's where they started finding all these old cave drawings. Oh, wow. And animal artifacts and sculptures in the clay and in yeah. the rock. Cool. In fact, you've got uh, some pictures. There we go. It just looks like a rock to me. It looks this, like a this mud here pile. was a that was the that was the cave bear. That's a carving of a cave, like in 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 um out of clay and rock. Okay, and then the part that we, we should be ahead, there used to be a, a real bear skull. Oh wow! Okay, that, maybe it was just supposed had, to be a bear fall, that had fallen oh. off. 
So right. when he got there, it was a it was a clay skull or a big clay sculpture mound. of a bear with, with an actual bear skull okay. had fallen kind of down between the legs from early caveman days. Here he is, hundreds hundreds of years later, coming across thousands probably of years. Thousands. Yeah, probably thousands of years. Yeah, well, if it's nineteen hundred, it's thousands of years. Nineteen twenties. So they mentioned that within a within a radius of thirty feet in the inner gallery was a vast array of clay animal figures of clay animal figures, the most prominent being the statue of the bear. In its crouching position, the hind paws were hidden under its belly, but its right forepaw was outstretched. The claws clearly indicated. Shoulders and haunches were well-rounded. Apparently, the primitive sculptor had fashioned it purposely without a head because beyond the characteristic hump of the bear's back, where the right head belonged, the surface was carefully smoothed. A real bear's head had been attached there with a wooden peg, remnants of which were still visible. Hmm. What happened to the bear head? Did he take it and hang it behind his bar at home? He did. <laughs> Three used to bring the girls back. <laughs> Let me show you my bear head. Many of the figures on the floor had been clawed and obliterated in places by bears. Often bare and naked human footprints were together. Sometimes the claw marks were on top of the footprints, sometimes the other way around. Man and beast struggled for possession of these caverns, struggled for possession of the cavern. One can hardly think, Castre said in his book, without shuddering of the fearful combats which must have taken place, nor ever cease to admire the courage of our distant ancestors who ventured into this lair of the wild beasts armed only with javelins and stone axes. Javelins, eh? Javelins, ma'am. I would have said a spear. Whatever the reason, the Grotto of Montespan provided us with the oldest statues in the world, all because a curious Norbert Castoret had the courage to strike out into the unknown and cross a threshold into a wonderland as marvelous to him as Alice was to her when she stepped through the looking glass. In the wake of his discovery came archaeologists, French and foreign scientists, reporters and photographers and from then on the quiet little village of Montespan was never the same again to the unassuming Casseret who once wrote where can one find such excitement see such strange sights enjoy such intellectual satisfactions as in exploration below ground it was the culmination of a lifelong ambition after his findings were officially confirmed and the grotto was classified as a historical monument he received awards and accolades from scholars, professors, and learned institutions, including a large gold medal from the Académie des Sports, all of which pleased him enormously. But none of his fanfare seems to have turned Castoret's head, because as quickly as he could, he went back doing the thing he enjoyed the most, crawling through unexplored caverns in search of new horizons underground. True explorer. True explorer in the, in the in the truest sense of going into yeah. the unknown, mm-hmm. the dark, the dark unknown, mm-hmm. and just like uh, good old Martin Farn's book is titled right, the darkness beckons, and there is something you know. Uh, one of the things that you know my my wife mentions, like even when we're in Curacao, like beautiful, mm-hmm. beautiful dives, um, and my wife's a good diver, but she's still she's got that innate fear because she sees that blue turning to Darker indigo into black <laughs> exactly. you know and she's like it's a on when she's on the wall she gets like she gets a little weirded out mm-hmm. like it, it's gonna like pull her 
pull her into the abyss and, <laughs> exactly. and never let her go kind yeah. of a thing, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I get it. I get it. But you got to have those people that are like, I got to go see that. Right. You got to right. have them. Yeah. So. Awesome stuff. Well, what a great way to transition the history of diving into our cave diving month with the history, some early history of, of really for all intents and purposes, right? It's the, the original cave it's the diving. the birth really. of yeah, cave diving, yeah. yeah. The real birth of it to where we are today. I mean, it's crazy. Big leaps. Interesting. Good stuff. That's, and, that, and, see, and, I didn't know any of this stuff. This is all all new stuff for me. Awesome, so. man. And well, in today's day where, where you, you go in with a set of doubles and you dive the rule of thirds on your gas, mm-hmm. back then it was a bathing cap and six, six, <laughs> six matches. Candles, yes. Six <laughs> matches, candles. Craziness, man. Well, hey, everybody. I hope you uh, enjoyed our little history into diving and uh we are we're moving on to some uh a little bit more cave diving stuff as we move along in our wonderful world of history of or or our wonderful world of uh cave diving month so on that note let's um let's sign this log book are we gonna sign i thought no we're still in our stage battle i thought we're 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 still continuing this i have one match left (laughs) okay we'll go all right, well, hold, I'll sign. Uh, hold Let's this go. so you can see my logo. <laughs> well, we have to come back. We'll come back. All right, I'll sign along. Get well soon. Love, Sammy. Let me see yours. Your logbook beckons. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, guys, see you next week. Safe diving. Okay, cool. All right. So all that being said. All that being said, are we recording, by the way? We've been recording for the past nine minutes. So Reminder, delete everything <laughs> delete. prior to this. <laughs>